with hope, and then we had peace. Uh, week one was hope. We talked about the pre-incarnate Christ. We talked about Jesus, how his eternality, how his pre-existence uh, is so important because it gives us hope. Remember, Jesus was there uh, in the beginning uh, with God, uh, being God, uh, and making plans uh, as God would plan, uh, planning for the creation of the world, planning to uh, then become a, a, a human uh, and die on a cross for our sins before we were even born. And how he appeared to people, the pre-incarnate Christ appearing as the angel of the Lord to people in the Old Testament uh, to give them help uh, when needed, sometimes to give them discipline when needed or to give them warning when needed. Uh, so he is there uh, in the beginning uh, before creation and even in creation before he was born, uh, giving us hope. Uh, and so we can understand from this that uh, when Jesus appeared to people in the Old Testament, he was doing that to give them hope of a future. And if he gives them hope, well, he gives us hope as well. We know that because Jesus is coming again uh, and that if he doesn't come before we pass, we will go to be with him. Uh, we have this hope as well. So that was week one. Uh, week two, last week, was peace. Uh, we talked about how Jesus predicted in prophecy and then depicted through uh, pictures uh, of people and events in the Old Testament, how that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And uh, we learned that, that those things happened before he was ever born and, and how those things give us peace. The fact that uh, God is sovereign over all things, that he can uh, predict things through prophets that came hundreds of years before Jesus Christ and have all those things come true, uh, that gives us peace. And we know that because the first coming of Jesus was predicted and came true, uh, that we can rest assured that the second coming of Jesus, which is predicted, will also come true. God is always true to his promises. And so we can have peace in this very chaotic world. God has a plan and you can trust him with whatever is going on in your life right now. Even when you can't understand what's going on in your life right now, even when everything seems to be going wrong in your life, right now, we can still have peace with God because Jesus offers himself as our peace. He died on the cross for our sins uh, and he purchased us with his blood and his blood reconciles us with God the Father when we receive Jesus as our savior. So his birth, his incarnation gives us peace. And this week uh, we're talking about joy. And so for the next two weeks, what we're gonna do is talk about the two natures of Jesus Christ when he became a man. Jesus was 100% God, and Jesus was 100% man at the same time. Now, for us, the math doesn't work, but for God, the math works. He can be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. So he's fully God, and he proves through scriptures that he's fully God, and we'll talk about that today. And then we'll talk about why it's so important that Jesus be fully God. Why, when we hear uh, some uh, religions, uh, cults, I might call them out there, who say that Jesus is not fully God, uh, why that is so catastrophic, why uh, we must have a, a, a Jesus who is fully God in order to save our souls. And then next week, we're going to talk about Jesus being 100% man and why that's important. And we'll tie that to our Advent theme of love. So for now, uh, let's just define joy. Uh, this word joy comes from the Greek word kara or charis. That's becoming a popular name lately. I don't know if you've noticed that, but lots of, of uh, young mothers are naming their daughters charis, which is uh, a, a word for joy. 
And joy is, is more than just a happy feeling. <clears throat> uh, it's a lasting emotion that, that comes with the knowledge that we are safe and secure uh, in God, in Jesus Christ, and in the knowledge that God will fulfill all of his promises to us. Now, happiness is fleeting, and it often depends on circumstances that are beyond our control. When good things happen to us, we're happy. When bad things happen to us, you know, we can become sad. Uh, but joy is this deep, abiding sense of contentedness and delight that endures even through bad circumstances at bad times because we know that our salvation, our eternity is secure. But our eternity can only be secure if Jesus is 100% God. So let's just talk briefly about the proof of Jesus's deity. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis that you're all probably familiar with is when, when C.S. Lewis is answering uh, the, the, uh, the objections, uh, people who, who uh, say that Jesus Christ is a good teacher, uh, but certainly not God, and certainly not somebody to be worshipped. And here's what Lewis famously wrote. I am trying here uh, to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And that is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, we cannot, must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And I love that quote because it's so true. It's hypocritical to say on the one hand, oh, I love Jesus's moral teachings. He was a great moral teacher, uh, but not worship Jesus. Jesus's deity and his teaching are a package deal. They go hand in hand. You either believe he's God, you worship him, and you bow before him, and you obey what he said, or you don't. Now, if he's God, everything he said is true and demands our 100% obedience. And if he's not God, we should just ignore every single thing he said, because as Lewis said, he's either a lunatic on the level of a poached egg, or he's a madman, or something even worse. But Jesus proved that he is God uh, by so many different ways, uh, and that he is worthy of our worship and obedience. Let's just talk briefly about the attributes of God. Jesus has all the attributes of God. Scripture proves his omnipotence, uh, that he is all-powerful, his omnipresence, that he can be everywhere all at once, uh, and that he, his, he is omniscient, that he knows everything, and many other attributes Scripture talks about. Uh, so who else but God has those attributes? And Jesus has these attributes, as we see during his life. Scripture also proves that Jesus did things that only God can do. So, for example, he healed the lame, the paralyzed, and the blind. He raised the dead. He calmed storms. He multiplied fish. He cast out demons. Only God has the power to do the things that Jesus did. And so the miracles prove Jesus' deity. 
And to those who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, he never said himself that he was God, well, Jesus took the very names of God. He said, uh, he called himself, I am. Remember when he was arguing with the Pharisees uh, and they said, who are you, Jesus? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That is the divine name of God, that when Moses asked God uh, his name at the burning bush, uh, God said, tell them I am sent you. The great name of God that Jesus took for himself. Jesus said in John 10, I and the Father are one. Uh, how much clearer could you be than that? Jesus called himself the Son of God. Uh, so that in, a, in, a, uh, in the sense of he has the same essence of God, but a different function from God. And so he's, he's claiming these names of God, and, and, and then he's going about uh, proving it by the things that he does. And then the claims to authority that Jesus made. Look at what Jesus does. He says, I have the power to forgive sins. I have the power to judge people. All judgment comes with the Son. I have the power to give life. Uh, to raise people from the dead and to give them eternal life. He who believes in me uh, shall not perish, but has passed from death to life. Jesus claims this authority for himself. And so the religious authorities wanted to kill him for the miracles, for the attributes that he had, for the claims that he made, for taking the name of God. Remember at, uh, at Jesus's trial when he said, uh, you will see, the, see me coming uh, as the Son of Man on clouds. That's taken right from Daniel chapter 7, uh, a, a clear claim to, divine, uh, to divinity. And obviously they knew what he was talking about, the claims that he was making, because they immediately stopped the trial. They said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard him. What do you say? This is blasphemy. And they take him off uh, to condemn him. So all of this proves Jesus' deity. Jesus did things only God could do. He claimed the names that only God has. He claimed the authority of God. All these things uh, show that Jesus has claimed to be God and does things that only God can do. Now, it's impossible to honestly read the New Testament and say uh, that if these things are true, that Jesus is not God and that he didn't claim to be God. You can't read the New Testament and honestly say that. Whether you believe those claims is another story. You can decide not to believe those claims, but the claims are clearly made in the New Testament, and it's up to you whether you believe or not. Uh, so his deity proved. Now let's talk about why his deity is important. You know, I often say that there are theological hills that we have to die on as Christians and theological hills that we don't have to die on as Christians. There are theological hills to die on, but not all theological hills are hills to die on. So whenever I preach on end times or prophecy, I often say these are not issues that we ought to divide over. These are issues that brothers and sisters in Christ can disagree about and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, everything in the Bible is important. I'm not saying it's not. God would not have given this revelation to us if it wasn't important. But when we have different ways of interpreting scriptures and still be within the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ, uh, well, then those are not things that we're supposed to divide over because there's a lot of ways to interpret prophecy. Uh, so the uh, interpretation of prophecy is not a theological hill to die on. But the deity of Christ is a theological hill that we have to die on. We have to die on that hill. We must be willing to die on it. It's a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. And what I mean by that is that the deity of Christ is one of the doctrinal, uh, cardinal doctrines of Christianity. Uh, if Jesus is anything less than 100% God, then Christianity cannot stand. It cannot stand. Jesus has to be 100% God. So let's ask why. 
Why is that so important? Well, first of all, only Jesus lived a sinless life. Remember, after Adam and Eve uh, ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, sin and death entered into the world. And since then, every human being has been born with a sin nature. And we sin because we are born sinners. But God is holy. God is holy. Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus did not inherit a sin nature. God used Mary as a vessel through whom Jesus would be born, but God protected Jesus from inheriting that sin nature, being contaminated by Mary's sin nature. And so when Jesus was born, he didn't have a sin nature. So for us, for you and I, we can only handle so much temptation, right? Sooner or later, our sin nature is going to get the best of us, and we are going to give in to sin. Uh, Our sinful nature, our sinful desires will get the better of us. But Jesus couldn't sin, even though he was tempted in all ways, just as we are. And that's what qualified Jesus to be the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that God had instituted to allow people to atone for their sins. So to be forgiven for sin, a sinner had to bring a perfect one-year-old male lamb, a lamb without blemish, to the priest who would sacrifice that lamb, and the blood of the lamb would atone for, would pay for, uh, the sinner's sin. But because people can't stop sinning, they have to keep bringing this perfect sacrifice over and over and over again. Day and night, people brought sacrifices to be offered uh, because the people uh, could not stop sinning. Now, they they couldn't bring like this decrepit old lamb that was going to die next week anyway, right? That's not a sacrifice. A sacrifice is a perfect one-year-old male lamb, a real sacrifice, something of value, something that was going to hurt to have to, to give up. And so God demands a perfect sacrifice, something that costs us something, something of value, not a decrepit old lamb, but a perfect lamb. And so when Jesus came to end the sacrificial system, he had to be sinless. He had to be that perfect lamb without blemish, sacrificed for our sin, acceptable to God, offered once for all for the sin of humanity. And as God himself, and as God's own son, Jesus in the flesh, there could be no greater sacrifice. What could be harder uh, than to sacrifice your own son? That's what God did for us. And the only reason that, that Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice to God is because he lived a sinless life and because he was God. And so it's important that Jesus lived a sinless life. He is our only hope. Now, closely related to that reason is the fact that only God can satisfy God. This is closely related to his sinlessness, But the principle is that the sacrifice of a lesser being than God cannot satisfy a holy God. So it takes someone who is infinitely God to bear the weight, the full penalty of the sin of the world. No finite creature could ever do that. We could never bear the weight of the world. I had a professor in seminary who said it like this. Christ had to be God to pay our debt because a lesser cannot satisfy the greater when the greater is the standard of satisfaction. And that's a bit of a difficult sentence, so let me just tell you what that means. God sets the standard for what will satisfy his wrath. And that standard is perfection. And none of us sinful creatures, because we have blemishes, can sacrifice ourselves and satisfy God's wrath. None of us are qualified to do that. I can't die for your sins. I I could jump in front of a moving car that was going to hit you and push you out of the way and, and the car hits me and I die. I sacrifice my own life so that you can live. But I haven't saved your soul. I've just saved your physical earthly life at the expense of mine. 
We are imperfect sacrifices. We are creatures like sheep with many blemishes. We cannot uh, be acceptable to God in that condition. There is only one who lived that perfect life. Only God can satisfy God. And that is why uh, it is important that Jesus is deity as well. And another reason, uh, I don't claim this list to be exhaustive, but we're just going to focus on three. And the third one is that only Jesus can serve as the mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Well, what is a mediator? Uh, if you've ever been sued or, or sued somebody and you had to go to court, it may be that the court appointed a mediator uh, to talk to the two parties in the case. And so a mediator is one who stands between the two parties and tries to reconcile them to each other. And so the court wants mediators to settle cases to help clear the court's docket. In the Old Testament, the priests mediated between God and man. The priest would offer sacrifices to God for himself and for the people, reconciling the people to God through the sacrifices that they offered. But priests didn't save anyone. They only offered the sacrifices they brought to God. God's the one who accepted the sacrifices and deemed that person clean and forgiven of that sin. Salvation is of the Lord. The salvation is not of the priests, not of the mediator. But Jesus is a different kind of mediator, isn't he? He's not like the Old Testament priests. Because he is God and because he was sinless, he can stand between God and man and he can offer his blood one time as a ransom to God for all sin. And only one on equal footing with God can do that. Only he can offer his own blood as a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God. So Jesus is our mediator with God, and he has reconciled us to God by his blood. So Jesus has to be 100% God in order to save us for our sin. I hope we can see the importance of that now. If Jesus is not fully God, there can be no trinity there can be no incarnation, no sinless life, no sacrificial redeeming death, no salvation for our sins, and no Christianity. It cannot stand without Jesus being fully God. I was uh, in Florida recently visiting my parents, and uh, when I go to the beach, I have to walk under this bridge to get to, uh, to, the, to the part of the beach that I go to. And there was this kiosk of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, standing there, uh, and I've seen them before and uh, you know, looked at their materials, and I just find it so sad because you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are to be commended for their zeal, right? Uh, they are very, very zealous for evangelism. But what are they doing? They're teaching that Christ is not God. And so when you ask them, what is it that saves you? <clears throat> Their salvation comes from some combination of faith and works, just like all works-based salvation. And so these uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they man booths. They do door-to-door -door evangelism because they're constantly trying to earn their salvation by the good works that they do. And they never know if they've done enough to be acceptable to God. And that's what happens when you deny the deity of Christ. Now, because you don't have a savior, you have to save yourself. And that is the problem with all works-based salvation. They'll never have joy because only Jesus can save us. One Christmas classic I try to watch every year is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. What a classic, right? Chuck, your shirt. There it is. It's a beautiful sweater uh, with a beautiful message of joy. <clears throat> you know, the Grinch, he hates Christmas. 
He hates Christmas. He hates everything about it. All those joyful who's down in Whoville. He hated their toys. He hated their noise. He hated their feast. He hated the roast beast. And then they did something he hated most of all. Every who down in Whoville, the great and the small, they'll stand close together with Christmas bells ringing. They'll stand hand in hand and those who's will start singing. The Grinch schemed to stop Christmas because he couldn't stand the sound of those happy who's down in Whoville. And so on Christmas Eve, he and his faithful dog Max ride down Mount Crumpet, load up their sleigh with all of their decorations and food and presents and all that stuff and take it all back up to the top of Mount Crumpet. And the Grinch stands up there with his ear perched down to Whoville and he's listening and hoping, eagerly anticipating the wailing sobs of the who's down in Whoville. But the sound he heard was not crying, it was singing. The Grinch was perplexed. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming at all. It came even though he had stolen all the presents and the food and the decorations. How could the Who's have so much joy when the Grinch took everything they had? And then the Grinch realized he didn't take everything they had because the meaning of Christmas is not in the food and the decorations and all of that stuff. The meaning of Christmas is in their hearts. And so the, the Who's Down in Whoville went out, formed a circle, and started singing for joy, even though their stuff was all gone. And that's where the joy of Christmas comes from. It's not in our stuff, it's in our hearts and what Jesus has done for us. I was recently reading uh, the book of Philippians, uh, which is a, a book all about joy. Uh, it's mentioned so many times in the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul wrote this letter from prison, remember. Uh, so his, his freedom uh, is interrupted. His plans are interrupted. He's suffering. And in all this, Paul can't stop speaking about the joy that he has in Christ. He rejoiced that even though he was in prison, he preached the gospel to the whole Praetorian Guard, and, and these folks were starting to believe. Uh, and so he praised God because he found the truth. He once placed so much confidence in his own flesh. Philippians 3, uh, he was circumcised the eighth, eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, he was blameless. What a resume, right? I mean, he's going to get any job. That's the best resume you could possibly have, humanly speaking. But after he met the risen Christ in Acts chapter 9, he realized it was all worthless. All the stuff that he was striving for, works-based salvation, none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered to Paul was relationship with Jesus. And Paul had it. And that's why he could be joyful, even though he was in prison. Nothing can take away our joy when we know the Lord Jesus Christ. As you probably know, I've taken a great interest in Romans chapter 8 lately. Uh, and uh, I always say it's my favorite chapter in the Bible because it is the source of my joy. Uh, that's where it comes from. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, what a great source of joy. There is no condemnation if you know Jesus as your Savior. You will never face God's wrath. God has forgiven us because we have believed in his Son. Paul goes on in Romans 8 to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how we can live holy lives uh, by walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. 
about how God works everything together for good for those who uh, love him and who are called according to his purpose, about how God has planned your salvation uh, since before you were born, since before time began, and that nothing can stop your salvation. And then he ends the chapter with the greatest statement about our eternal security in the whole Bible. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a chapter. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. Uh, This is how secure we are in Christ, and this is why we have such joy. And it's all because, as Philippians 2 says, though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus, 100% God, comes and takes on human flesh. He's 100% man at the same time. And he became a bondservant for our sake, died on the cross for our sin, and you are not condemned if you have received Jesus as your Savior. If that doesn't bring you joy, I don't know what else possibly could. But just in case, I have a few reasons why the incarnation ought to bring joy. Aside from that, it shows God's desire to save us. Isn't that an incredible thing? Like God didn't have to save us. He didn't have to save any one of us. He could have banished each one of us sinful people off into eternity in hell. But God didn't do that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus. He takes on human flesh. He dwells among us because we cannot save ourselves. And so his his deity and his incarnation are both essential to our salvation. And if we've received the Lord Jesus and accepted him as our Savior, uh, that ought to be a great source of joy. Now, I know uh, that this can also be a time of great sadness. Uh, Michelle and Lou, what you talked about earlier, what you're going through now, just having lost your mom, this is a painful reminder. It's a, it's a time of year that, that when we have separation from people uh, that, that we love so much, there's an empty chair where the person used to be, and that's such a sad thing. But at the same time, Our days here are not long, and it's not going to be long before we are reunited with our loved ones again. And uh, you'll be with mom again. Lou, you'll be with your precious wife again, and we will see them again. And that is such a great source of joy. And this is because God's desire is to save us, and he has saved us by the blood of his son. Second, the incarnation gives our lives meaning. Without the incarnation, We would have no hope for today and no hope for tomorrow. People who don't know the Lord Jesus spend their whole lives looking for meaning in life, and they will continue to look for meaning until they uh, know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Uh, We will, without Jesus' incarnation, we would live our lives until our bodies gave out, then we would die, and then nothing. I mean, who wants to live like that? Who wants to believe like that? Uh, I don't know how anybody lives with that kind of hopelessness, but we don't have to live like that. Because of the incarnation, our lives have meaning and our lives have purpose. We can know we are loved by God and we can live lives that glorify God uh, by telling others of his grace and and making them disciples. Paul said in Philippians, uh, I'm hard-pressed on either side. I don't know what to do. It's better for for me to go and be with Christ, but it's better for you, Philippians, if I stay. And so I know that I will stay. Uh, for your benefit. Uh, But Paul said, look, to me, to live, to die makes no difference to me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It didn't matter to him. 
and we can have the same attitude. We can live for him for as long as he wants us to be here, and when our lives are over, we know that he will welcome us into his eternal kingdom. And none of that is possible without the incarnation, and that should be a source of joy. And last, the incarnation replaces fear with joy. The angels who announced uh, Jesus' birth to the shepherds said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How many times do you think you've heard that in your life? Probably a lot of times. The longer you've been a Christian, the more you've heard it. You can't let that get old. We can never let this good news get old. This has to be fresh every time we hear it, to marvel at the wonder that Jesus Christ took on flesh. This should give us great joy because it replaces the fear we have with joy. We don't have to live in fear. We can't know everything the future holds for us, but one thing we do know is that when we die, we will go to be with the Lord Jesus because of what he has done for us we can be sure of our salvation. And that's why the incarnation is such good news for us. Jesus has conquered Satan and sin and death. That's joy. Fear is forgetting who Jesus is, what he promised, and what he did for us. But joy is knowing that Jesus has won the battle, and all we're doing is walking in joy until the day when we enter into his glorious presence. And we have the promise that he's coming again. And so sources of great joy. Isaac Watts' famous song that we're going to sing in a minute, Joy to the World, says it like this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Have you received your king? This should be a source of great joy for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we have received the king, Lord. What an incredible thing that that Jesus Christ should come, take on human flesh, and Lord, that he would live among people and then die for the people he came to save at their hands, Lord. Uh, We can never stop marveling at this. Lord, I thank you for these truths. I thank you that while we may suffer for a little while here, uh, the promise of what's coming because of the incarnation Lord, we know that we will be with you, and we are just so grateful for that, and we'll be reunited with our loved ones, and we will be face-to-face with you, Lord. Let that give us great joy this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.